From time immemorial, beginning with indigenous councils and ancient wisdom traditions, through the work of Western visionaries such as Plato, Galileo, and quantum physicist David Bohm, mutually participatory dialogue has been seen as the key to evolving and transforming consciousness, evoking a flow of meaning, a dia flow of logos, meaning, beyond what any one individual can bring through alone. So join us now, as together with you, the active deep listener, we evoke and engage in living dialogues. And welcome to the program. I'm Duncan Campbell, and this is Living Dialogues. And on this particular program, we've got part two of what we began two days ago on Friday, the 18th of March. This is a series of programs with Harry Jaffe, Washingtonian's editor-at-large, a leading journalist uh, covering the city of Washington, D.C. and its politics, as my dialogue partner. The title of Friday's program and today is Bernie and Beyond, Deep Culture Transformation. So, Harry, welcome once again to Living Dialogues. I'm so happy to be with you, and what a timely discussion, a timely time for the country and timely time for the presidential uh, campaigns. A lot going on. A lot going on, and what we talked about uh, in the prior program was that you are an independent journalist. Uh, You got this inspiration to write a book about Bernie Sanders entitled Why Bernie Sanders Matters and subtitled A Nation Will Not Survive Morally or Economically When So Few Have So Much and So Many Have So Little. This came to you last fall, and you produced the book a little before Christmas, and I came across it uh, uh, advertised somewhere, and uh, we did our first series of programs on January 22, Connections, and then also on uh, January 31, Living Dialogues, and that really covered the material in your book, which is quite extraordinary. Uh, It's wonderful and easy to read and deeply researched about Bernie's life story, which I think is very, very interesting because he was really unknown in detail to the uh, larger public uh, before this recent phenomenon where he came from nowhere, literally made up his mind to run for president in April of 2015. Uh, We talked about that uh, encounter with the American vet uh, that occurred uh, in Denny's when he and his wife were having breakfast one day. And the vet came up and thanked him so much for having finally, after 30 fruitless years of trying to work with the Veterans Administration uh, to get what was uh, required to be given to him uh, under the law in terms of his medical condition. And Bernie's office straightened the whole thing out. And he said, I couldn't help but overhear you and your wife uh, talking here about maybe running for president. And I just don't want to interrupt you. I'll just say this. I really hope you do. And I will certainly be there, as will many, many other people, to support you. That was a very interesting story where after that, Bernie turned to Jane, his wife, and said, well, I guess we just can't walk away from this. And she said, you're right. We've got to do it. And so... Uh, the great contribution, I feel, of your book is that it's only in little bits and pieces in uh, the rather 
uh, small coverage that Bernie has been given uh, on the national uh, television or airwaves uh, compared to the vast coverage of all of the other candidates uh, in the race. Uh, and, and so his life story is coming out a bit at a time. So I really uh, want to let people know right at the start before we dive into the subject that this book is available here at KGNU as a special post Pledge Drive Premium. I will be here for a half an hour after this program and after the BBC comes up at 1 o'clock. And be sure to call here at 303-449-4885. 303-449-4885. And uh, you can get this book uh, as a premium, a $40 premium uh, as a new or renewing member, or simply I would urge you to just add to any existing contribution because the book itself will really illuminate a great deal of what we've already talked about, about the media coverage that you're hearing in whatever media you go to, social media, cable news, network, whatever. So with that background, Harry, I want to say that uh, I felt after our first two dialogues covering your book and that background, I've been thinking greatly about Bernie and beyond. What happens to this uh, phenomenal movement, which is a phenomenon that has simply arisen in these last uh, two or three months uh, across the country around Bernie Sanders with 84% of people under 30 repeatedly voting for him in these Democratic uh, primaries uh, compared to the 15 or so percent for Secretary Clinton. And uh, we want to know and speculate as to, well, what might happen whether or not he gets the nomination? Because this is only, as we pointed out, one presidential campaign. It will be over in November. There will be a new president. And whoever it is, the issues that Bernie has awakened the country to that are really systemic and uh, key to any deep transformation and survivability of the country will still be with us, whether he's elected or not, or whether or not he gets the nomination. So I want to launch in now to take up the discussion where we left it uh, on Friday. Uh, nobody can predict how this is going to come out, but one of the things that's happened since our earlier discussion is that there's been increasing coverage of Donald Trump and the uh, kind of uh, protests that his uh, repeated inflammatory language has evoked in the general public. There has been in Tom Hartman on his program uh, a reference to Henry Wallace, who was the vice president for FDR and a great American leader, really kind of forgotten by history, who said in the 40s that the precondition for any kind of fascism, which had then occurred in Germany, in Italy, and Japan, is monopoly economic and political control in a society. And uh, this now is becoming... Uh, something that commentators are paying attention to. So let's start there. Like uh, Bernie is pointing out that monopoly corporatism is the fundamental problem that we need to address to recapture diversity and American democracy and a society that benefits the many rather than the few. What are your thoughts uh, as you watch the drama unfold here in the campaign, particularly from this perspective? Well, I think that, you know, this is not the first time in the United States of America that we have faced this kind of a problem with monopolies. I mean, you have to go back to Teddy Roosevelt, who was, you know, the, uh, 
the, the first one to, to, you know, bust up the, the, you know, be the trust buster and break up the big companies. I mean, it, it, I think that for decades, more than a century, that uh, there's been a sense that you know, capitalism can, can go bad. Capitalism can turn against uh, the people, turn against the workers, and not uh, serve the, the population at large. I would say that uh, Bernie Sanders certainly saw this when he was uh, coming up as a student at the University of Chicago, um, he, he, he read a whole lot of Marx, he read a whole lot of Trotsky, and, and uh, you know, make no mistake about it, um, he, he, came, he has socialistic roots. Um, now, as I was researching how Bernie came up and, and who he became when he kind of got his political and philosophical uh, underpinnings kind of organized, was that he always talked about a mission. He didn't talk about, I want to be mayor, I want to be governor, I want to be senator, or I want to be president. Bernie Sanders, if you go back 20, 30, 40 years, always talked about a mission. And I think that that is the exact jumping off point to discuss what happens beyond uh, this particular campaign. Whether Bernie Sanders prevails or not, uh, he has in mind and he has as a goal to uh, create, uh, foster, and maintain uh, a movement that will uh, achieve the, the goals that he has set and that he says every day that he speaks. He truly believes that uh, the few have amassed too much power and wealth over the many, that that is fundamentally not democratic. Uh, it is not um, healthy for the country. And I, the, the, the other thing Bernie Sanders says, and you have to listen to Bernie, I'm, I'm laughing because Bernie Sanders, if nothing else, is, is direct, um, straightforward, and repetitive. And you have to listen to him all the time when he says one person cannot do this. A president cannot achieve the things that I'm talking about. It's going to take a movement. And so he continually um, kind of reaches beyond himself when he talks about the way he thinks this country should be, how this world should work for workers and for, you know, those who are not in the one-tenth of one percent. And he really puts the responsibility out beyond himself. And I think that that is going to be the kind of the, the telling, if you will, of what happens next in, in, in this country and beyond is, is um, you know, uh, a leader can point to where the country should go. Uh, but when uh, that leader, like Bernie Sanders, is suggesting radical changes, because make no mistake about it, he's also suggesting that there be a, um, a redistribution of wealth. And he repeatedly says uh, there, has, there has already been a redistribution of wealth in the past couple of decades in this country, 
But that redistribution of wealth has been from the middle class to the wealthy. He would like to see that reversed. But to accomplish that is going to take more than uh, a United States president. You know, and, and he, he's often asked, uh, Senator Sanders, uh, you know, you're suggesting uh, that, uh, you know, state colleges, public colleges should be free and, and that health care should be single payer and universal. How can you accomplish this when you are facing a Congress that is Republican and conservative? And Sanders every time says, well, I, I can't do it alone. Uh, it's going to take uh, people coming to the to Washington, stating their purposes, uh, marching uh, for $15 minimum wage, and marching for uh, health care that, that uh, serves all. So, you know, that I think is going to be the, the telling of what happens next. Will uh, people show up? Will Americans show up? Will millennials um, Besides giving money to Bernie Sanders, will they come to Washington if he, in fact, says, okay, I have introduced some legislation, we need to convince Congress and and the Senate and the president that we need to raise the minimum wage to $15. And I think that it's going to be a very, um, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be able to see what it looks like if people answer his call. So that's where I think we're moving in a very vernacular political way. And also in a deeply social way, because one of the things we stress here on Living Dialogues is that it's not just a matter of what happens in the external world. It's not a matter of a political activism that concentrates on uh, taking a problem and trying to change policies, such as raising the minimum wage to $15, as has been done in Seattle and some other cities like Los Angeles around the country, uh, or electing somebody, as they did in Seattle, a self-proclaimed socialist to the city council. These are signs of change, but really to get the kind of change that you're talking about and that Bernie envisions, we need a deep cultural change of consciousness itself. And by that I mean, uh, as we talked about uh, two days ago, shifting our uh, attention and our understanding of our role in the universe from a modern mind, conceptual, left brain, uh, problem-solving kind of orientation, as if whatever uh, the issues are, we can identify them by knowledge and reading and exposure and so on to media, and then make a cognitive uh, what makes sense uh, 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 response to that in the way of a political or economic policy. We have to actually uh, in integrate, as uh, we've said here for many uh, decades here, for two decades and more on Living Dialogues, our intuitive and imaginative uh, senses that we had as part of our indigenous heritage. We need to reawaken that and actually connect with the natural world as a source of our um, inspiration. We need to go back and put ourselves out in the natural world. There was a previous program that was on uh, not long ago here where a veteran came back from Iraq and found that his way to deal with PTSD and to also integrate other veterans back into the society was to take long walks in the National Forest, which happened to be in the backyard of his mother's house. This is someone who had served a term in Iraq as a 
sniper who had seen the um, uh, dysfunction and the erroneousness, the wrongness of our policy over there, and was himself taking care of himself to start with by reintegrating with the natural world and uh, putting himself into a kind of balance. Uh, and he started doing that with other vets. The vets are committing suicide at 22 people a day, uh, another symptom of this fundamental systemic uh, problem, a lack of relatedness altogether, relatedness among ourselves, lack of empathy that's been shown sociologically in all the studies of the 1%. Uh, and uh, there is this possibility he found that people could, by integrating themselves with the natural world and then reintegrating in society, uh, start to rebalance that consciousness. And one of the ways we could talk about it is that the left brain uh, cognitive policy, pragmatic, so-called realistic approach is not enough. We need to radically and imaginatively move beyond our current uh, unregulated capitalistic system and this military industrial prison complex that has been talked about through uh, an awakening of consciousness that is, uh, you might say, uh, viral. It, it's something that people can feel. They can uh, experience it. Uh, they experience a kind of transcendent of the oneness, of the me, of the separation. So we no longer look for leaders who will say, I will fight for you. Uh, as Bernie says, we need to look at ourselves and we need to all engage in the public space. And it's very difficult to do in an atomized society where people are maybe just looking at their computer screens, they don't have much in the way of a public space that's inspiring to uh, get involved uh, with and meet other people unless it's perhaps uh, uh, entertainment or a rock concert. Now, on this point, I just want to say recently, having participated in the caucuses here in Colorado, I think the caucuses are a very interesting way of doing a primary. A lot of people have said, oh, it's not efficient and it's subject to manipulation, whatever. Uh, those things are issues that I'm sure can be solved. But what was very exciting and interesting about the caucus was I met people there that I had never seen before who turned out to be in my precinct or my neighborhood and just meeting together. It was a kind of mini town hall, but not a town hall to come and listen to a candidate. It was really talking among ourselves and, uh, and then just kind of hanging out. And uh, there were at least two or three people out of that meeting that have connected with since then. So I think the fact that Bernie has carried his educational mission that you described so well as his lifelong calling for the last 40 years onto the political stage using the platform of a presidential campaign actually goes way beyond politics. It's, it's a way to actually awaken a cultural transformation that can begin to see the deeper relationship issues with ourselves and with our fellow uh, citizens where we can move to a localized and sharing economy. Uh, a localized and sharing way of being in communication. And out of that energy field, the solutions will start to become self-evident, ways to restructure uh, our food system, restructure our electricity and energy system, like Boulder is involved in a uh, major project to muni municipalize our energy system and empower the consumers to be prosumers.
So with that said, I want to go back now to you and uh, ask you, in Washington, D.C., what do you observe there, uh, Harry? You've been a longtime uh, resident and observer of our political class headquartered in Washington, D.C. Are they hearing your voice? Are they hearing Bernie's voice? Are they hearing my voice? Are they hearing the voice of the millennials? I mean, I, I, can, I, can, I can expound upon that, but the, the, the simple answer is, uh, the political establishment is aghast uh, at what's going on on the Republican side. They are uh, a little bit less freaked out and uh, disbelieving about what's happening on the Democratic side. Uh, no, you're talking about an, uh, an ossified system here in Washington, D.C., that is uh, you know, based on, on money and power and influence. Uh, and and so no, I think the ideologues on the right side in the in the Republican Party are certainly um, taking over and uh, making their presence felt. Uh, but on the Democratic side, on the Bernie Sanders side, I, I think that there's more movement. I think that the millennials and the supporters of uh, Bernie Sanders are at least making their presence known. I mean, I I hate to to be crass, but if you're going to understand what happens in Washington, D.C., you have to start from being crass. And uh, the politicians, the 435 members of of Congress and the 100 uh, senators, care mostly about being reelected. So they're looking... If you're a congressman, two years ahead, and if you're a senator, you know six years ahead. But they just want to be reelected, and they'll do whatever they can to get reelected. And it's not until I'm going to take it right back to what Bernie said. And it's not until the voters in the in their home states and in their home voting districts uh, change uh, and force the the um, the representatives to change. Will we have any kind of movement here in Washington, D.C. So it, it's, uh, I appreciate everything that you're saying. I support everything you're saying as far as, you know, uh, what, it, what it's going to require to change and the change that we're seeing. But Washington, D.C. is a very show-me-the-money, show-me-the-power, <laughs> show-me-the-votes kind of place. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a reason why Bernie Sanders uh, has no particular allies in Congress. Uh, you know, how many U.S. senators have endorsed Bernie Sanders? None. None. Zero. Um, and that in and of itself should, should kind of answer your question. And I, I hate to say it, but the short answer is no. Uh, the, the powers that be in Washington, D.C. are not uh, given to, uh, to change unless they're forced. And that's, I think, a very interesting uh, but not unexpected observation, but uh, very important that we keep that in mind as we go forward, because as you say, the people in Washington are very much into preserving the system. That's why they're called the establishment. We spoke in our program two days ago about how, uh, in a dialogue that I did with 
a series of dialogues with Joseph Chilton Pierce 15 years ago, uh, we were pointing out the difference between culture uh, and civilization, that a culture is, uh, we might say, the establishment. Its purpose is stasis. It's keeping things stable uh, for the benefit of the few as opposed to the many uh, and, and being in control of the situation. And it's gotten more and more so uh, over the last 35 years to the point it's gotten to the breaking point. When we look back in history, we see that when a society gets to a certain kind of stasis and then moves into a sort of hyperstasis, which is the polarization and the ineffectiveness of our government at this point because of the very things that you're talking about, it starts to move to what we call a kinetic stage, some movement starts to reactively happen uh, to move out of that quagmire and that stuckness. Uh, it's like uh, you know a dying caterpillar uh, generates imaginal disks, and out of it can come a transformed butterfly. But it has to get to that internal rot situation first, and we are there now in this particular culture, and that is obvious. Many people that are in the establishment refuse to acknowledge that. But what's happening now is the beginnings of, let's say, a kinetic stage, which can move into a hyperkinetic stage if we look at it from that perspective and make deeper transformation. So I see Bernie is the first national indication of this happening, and he's got the platform of a presidential campaign, presumably between now and um, certainly the convention and uh, perhaps uh, all the way to November. And it's that infectious spirit that people can feel they need a place to put it. And we're suggesting that people begin to think of uh coming together in this kind of elder youth dialogue, uh, that there are older people in the society, such as myself and others who were uh, in the 60s. And we know what can happen when people get together and they get into the public space, just as you're saying. And what's very interesting about Bernie's political campaign in terms of show me the money, uh, show me the votes, is that he's doing both. He's completely not dependent on any kind of uh, wealthy patrons. He's getting his money in a very a huge way from uh, a massive, uh, by uh, political standards, uh, base of ordinary people. Average donation, $27, $30. So as we wind up this particular program, going forward, I just uh, uh, want to say that uh, the hopefulness in this evolution uh, is that uh, this connection between older elements of society and millennial elements of the younger generation who are coming forward can begin to make common cause on a local basis. Uh, the great uh, poet and visionary uh, from Germany in the 19th century, Goethe, said that a destiny of any given nation at any given time depends on the thoughts of its young people under 25. Informed then by the experience of older generations such as yourself or myself. Uh, so let's hope that kind of generative elder youth dialogue can come forward. We're doing a whole series on that here on Living Dialogues. And before we go off from this particular program, just want to give you a final word here, Harry, as you look to the future. I have a, uh, an optimistic view of things as well. Um, I think that what's, what we're seeing with the attractiveness, the sudden attractiveness of uh, Donald Trump is kind of the dying throes of, of, a, uh, of a hardened narrow-minded establishment uh, that uh, I think will demographically uh, wither away in this country. 
And I, 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 to, to, to on the optimistic side, you know, uh, we have a uh, young folks and uh, and uh, immigrants from all over the, the globe that are kind of reinvigorating American society and American economy and American academics and American intellectual thinking. And, uh, you know, this country has always thrived on that kind of pollination and cross-pollination and repollination. And so uh, that's what Bernie is, is uh, seeing and, and feeding off of and, and hoping to organize. So uh, I would agree with you that, that uh, Bernie Sanders, oddly enough, a 74-year-old uh, guy from Brooklyn, uh, saw some uh, very worthwhile uh, things to attach himself to and to educate people about back in the 60s and 70s and all the way through the 80s and 90s and to the current time. And, uh, you know, maybe it takes that kind of a leader to, uh, to be at the right place at the right time. But the onus does fall on us. The onus falls on the voters and the residents to um, to take up the, uh, the the mantle and to uh, act. It takes action beyond just talking and thinking to uh, to make change. And I think that that's what's uh, what Bernie Sanders is asking us to do. But as you said, Duncan, uh, he's already doing that. He's already changed in a shocking way the way that uh, politicians can raise funds. And I think it has to do with the Internet. It has to do with his message. It has to do with the people who are receiving the message and taking action. But uh, if, if, if a, a future leader can take a page from Bernie Sanders' book and, um, and connect a message with the means available through the Internet for raising funds and getting out the message, I think that that is revolutionary in and of itself. Well, beautifully said, uh, Harry, and I must say that uh, what this leaves us with is a real deep inspiration uh, to get into the public space and keep this kind of dialogue alive. Uh, you and I will have another one as we get deeper into the next few months. We'll catch up and take another read on it. And in the meantime, just uh, let people know that uh, both you and I, uh, back in the 60s, we participated in demonstrations that were in the public space. It's hugely invigorating. And here we have an opportunity to take that to the next level by concentrating on our local issues, by meeting, uh, possibly creating, as was suggested by one of our listeners on Friday, a local town halls to get back into the public space to carry this energy of transportation transformation forward well beyond uh, this campaign and this election, whoever turns out to be the nominee or the president. So again, Harry, I want to say it's a great contribution you've made with your book, Why Bernie Sanders Matters, A Nation Will Not Survive Morally or Economically When So Few Have So Much and So Many Have So Little. So kudos. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It means a lot to me, and I thank you for letting me join in your discussion and inviting me into your community. Well, it's been my pleasure as well, Harry, and our pleasure, and so we will do that in the future. And in the meantime, let people know that the book is available here in the next half hour or so, or during the week. You can call in to 303-449-4885, 303-449-4885. This is KGNU Boulder, Denver, 88.5 FM and 1390 AM with translator K229AC in Nederland, Colorado at 93.7 megahertz on the web, W 
www.kgnu.org, and all of these programs archived at kgnu.org forward slash living dialogues. I'm Duncan Campbell. You're warmly invited to join us again next week on Living Dialogues. And if you'd like to listen freely to additional archived visionary dialogues with myself and other transformational thinkers, you can go to www.kgnu.org forward slash living dialogues. That's living, D-I-A-L-O-G-U-E-S. And for additional dialogues, you can also Google Duncan Campbell, the best in new paradigm thinking, and click on the Living Dialogues icon. Thanks again for your deep listening in evoking this program. All the very best.